Hey everybody, this is Shannon with VIP Kid World. Welcome back. In today's podcast, we are going to be moving into the 12th chapter of our book reading, Little Soldiers by Lenora Chu. The 12th chapter is titled Genius Means Struggle. We are actually in the last two chapters, so there's 12 and 13. Um, and each one of these chapters are a little bit longer than some of the other ones. So uh, for the purpose of timing and the fact that these podcasts cap out at an hour, um, I'm going to be making two parts for both number 12 and number 13 chapters. So there will be two parts, part one and part two for chapter 12 and the same for chapter 13. Just so there's no rapid fire reading to fit in something that is a little bit too long. <laughs> I hope you guys have been enjoying this. We are almost to the end of the story. Oh, it's been so fun. Um, so let's jump right in and get into our 12th chapter. <clears throat> Americans emphasize achievement without hard work. They believe in the concept of genius. This is a problem. The Chinese, they know hard work. Xiao Dongli, Professor of Cognitive Studies. In December, Teacher Song distributed an announcement via the class WeChat. We have been rehearsing for weeks for Sung Qingling annual show. The Chinese love a good performance, especially one with costumes and photo ops, and the WeChat parent response was robust. Excellent, teacher. You are so brave and diligent. I look forward to the day. I had a hard time faking enthusiasm for this one, as did Rainy. All we do is practice, 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 Rainy said, wrinkling his face into a scowl at breakfast. Winter in Shanghai always dampened my holiday cheer. Self-quarantine and our high rise on polluted days, entombed in smog, we missed our parents and siblings most intensely during this run-up to Thanksgiving and Christmas. Our family was alone in Shanghai for the holidays. All we had was the Sung Jingling annual show. The performance would take place a week before Christmas. A couple of weeks prior, I slipped into school to pay tuition and stumbled upon Teacher Song lording over an assortment of children in a second-floor coat room. The reason I keep repeating my requirements is so that you can memorize them, Teacher Song commanded. Ting Shong, attention! A dozen students, facing each other in two posing lines, stood erect at her command. All right, if we teachers work this hard, you need to work hard too, Song barked, her voice sharp and high. March, with feet up high! Yi Be Chi, begin! I spotted Rainy. He'd been wiggling and jumping, but he heeded her command with the straightest spine I'd ever seen on my son. The two lines of children marched toward each other, knees lifting toward the ceiling, staggered just so. When they merged, precisely one forearm length separated one child's passing shoulder from the next. Two weeks later, Rob and I filed, filed into Sung Qingling Assembly Hall. It was the kind of performance I'd often endured during Sunday Chinese school in Houston. Every so often, the principal there would decide it was time to display the children, 
So teachers would spend weeks planning performances, sports meets, and speech competitions for us. Apparently, that wasn't enough offspring gazing time for my own parents, who also ordered up ten years of weekly Chinese dance lessons, which, of course, tracked progress in an annual gala performance replete with silk gowns and fan dances. Generally, I had little enthusiasm for such parades aside from the friendships I made through them. Though, as I grew older, I cherished the memories of my parents' attempts to keep their culture alive in America. As Rob and I filed into the hall of Rainy School, my childhood flashbacks began. Whatever the locale or era, the Chinese school performance always brandished three things: a finely dressed adult on stage with a microphone. A hundred costumed children waiting in the wings, and gaggles of parents in the audience with cameras around necks. Today, Rainey's twenty-four-year-old associate teacher Tao took the microphone, enveloped in a pea coat the color of imperial red, fake eyelashes fluttering in an undulating ocean of parents amassed before her. The air was electrified with thoughts of dancing offspring, and Tao lifted her voice into an artificially high register. The annual parent-child event, Teacher Tao began, hips swinging with the effort. Will now begin. Welcome the children on stage with your applause. Instantly, a dozen parents sprung up from their chairs and crawled with their cameras to stake out positions in front, with bird's eye view of the stage. The speakers blared music. Three children materialized from the wings and positioned themselves at the top of a rubber mat runway, which stretched into the audience. What unfolded was an expertly choreographed Chinese toddler version of Milan Fashion Week. At the top of the stage, the trio of children struck a pose. Middle child thrusting an arm victoriously into the air like a singer who'd just finished an opening act. Her backup Spice Girls snapped into position. Freeze! One, two, mouthed a teacher at the end of the runway, starting a countdown. Parents scurried to photograph the immobilized trio, chortling at their cuteness. Three, four. Teacher puppeteer continued, as a bouncy tune blared over the loudspeakers, conjuring up images of syrupy sweet animated lollipops. Five, six, now walk, walk toward me. Teacher puppeteer signaled. In this way, the show cycled through several dozen trios of children. From there, the teachers launched into a string of colorful song and dance numbers, which began to plod after the first few numbers. Suddenly, a handful of children, gripping ivory-colored plastic recorders, assembled on a tiered bleacher. Rob sat up. Rainy can't play the recorder, he whispered. A rare moment of anxiety for my husband. I glanced at the stage. Our son seemed conspicuously absent, as if there were an empty spot on the bleachers that only Rob and I could see. A designated conductor. Child began swinging his arms stiffly to the tune "Mary Had a Little Lamb," and a cacophony of notes filled our ears. "He's probably the only kid who doesn't know how to play," Rob muttered, remorse creeping into his voice. We'd passed up on Teacher Song's offer to help Rainy with the recorder, and on our own, 
deeply dedicated effort to help our son and her instead lasted about three evenings. Meanwhile, Song sent a WeChat by WeChat relentless, infuriating messages about the recorder. Oh, the future will be more and more difficult if the family doesn't practice hard to keep up. We made a choice, I told Rob, my eyes on the collection of pert, exhaling children on stage. Let's live with it. We survived that melodic reminder of our parental inferiority, and then watched as the show cycled through a reindeer dance and a Santa and Sleigh musical number, followed by a colorful rendition of We Are the World. My stomach began to grumble. Rob and I sat and watched, whispering to each other occasionally, but before long we began to stare blankly, our butts aching against the hard plastic chairs. No rainy inciting. Finally, Teacher Tao, in her swishing red peacoat, announced the Xinjiang dance. Yes, this is it, I told Rob, confident in my prediction that Rainy would be chosen for anything strange or foreign. Yep, Rainy will show up in this one, Rob agreed. Located in the far northwest, Xinjiang is commonly referred to as the spot on earth that's farthest from an ocean in any direction. It's home to high concentrations of ethnic minorities, particularly Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and Tajiks. China's state-run media prefer to characterize this area as lawless and remote. But in truth, such groups bristle under increasingly restrictive central government policies, and the party has cracked down on Islamic extremism and separatistic activities there. News reports paint the region as a haven for terrorism and mayhem. A bomb on a bus? Xinjiang. A knife and bomb attack at the railway station? Xinjiang. A truck hijacking? Xinjiang. Xinjiang natives who leave and migrate to other places such as Shanghai are often looked down upon by the majority Han Chinese, who comprise about 90% of Chinese living in, in China. Our Han Chinese teachers could have chosen our foreign son to dance as a reindeer or a jolly Santa. Instead, I spotted Rainy waiting in the wings, dressed in the vest of a Xinjiang minority. There he is. Our son is the Uyghur, I whispered to Rob. Someone had cut a curly mustache from black paper and taped it to Rainy's face. Two dark, plump worms that danced on his upper lip. As the song, Raise Your Head Cover, Let Me See How Pretty You Are, a nod to Muslim headscarves, blared over the loudspeaker, a gaggle of children filed on stage in tiptoes, right arms raised high in salute. Sun Ching Ling teachers are nothing if not politically wise. There was no hint of ethnic strife, mayhem, or terrorism. Inside this school assembly, the people of Xinjiang were happy, pirouetting minorities, the boys in coal black vests sewn with golden braids and sequins, the girls in taffeta skirts over white tights, a pounding, rollicking melody kept in time, 
as the children launched a partnered dance, which conjured up nomads dancing around a fire outside their yurt. The whole shebang was farcical, but I couldn't deny that the dance was a marvel in instruction, rehearsal, and presentation. Sun Qingling teachers had choreographed a routine down to five-second intervals involving dozens of small children. Weeks of thought had gone into choreography and practice, and the costumes were made to order. Teacher Song's debriefing unfolded as if China had defeated Japan in the Olympic gold medal match in badminton. We spent two and a half weeks preparing for this performance, said Song, breathless, addressing a group of parents who trudged into a fourth-floor conference room as the children dispatched for lunch. The children are very tired. It was very stressful and challenging to gather all 120 kids in the middle-class grades. But you see how much progress our kids have made. Each practice method had a purpose, Song explained designed toward a specific payoff. Rehearsing with other classes develops social skills. Rotating teachers requires children to adapt to new styles of instruction. Memorizing positions on stage enhances spatial thinking. The quickest children can remember their positions after two or three times. They know who's standing next to them, Song said. Others might need five or six times. But with effort, all of them got it, Song proclaimed with a flourish of her arms. I thought about the math classes I had observed on the other side of Shanghai. Effort yields results. Here at Sun Qingling, those lessons were being imparted early, in kindergarten form. These children had learned to take instruction, rehearse week after week, and demonstrate their progress before a captive audience. The way Teacher Sung described it, the Sun Qingling annual show had been a test, and the children's efforts had paid off beautifully. Darcy was facing down his own effort of a lifetime. The National College entrance exam was only a few months away, and my Chinese high school friend had embarked on a study regimen more tightly plotted than a marathon runner's. He'd passed the interviews at Jiaotong University, which gave him points, advantage on the Gaokao, but he still needed to score above a certain threshold to be admitted. Dan Ziao, he told me when we met for coffee. What does that mean? I asked. Taken individually, the characters meant single and note. But they pieced together to form no word I recognized. My life is done, Diao, he said. I reached into the recesses of my mind. Nothing. I don't know that word, I repeated. If there is a picture with twelve colors, he says, searching for the right words, and next to it there's a photo with only one single color, the single-colored photo would be described as Dan Diao. That's how I feel. Life is only one color. Darcy was describing monotony. His days at school were plotted with precision. Six o'clock, rise for a seven o'clock school bell. 
meals of rice, vegetables, and soup, stolen in the time between classes, with 15 minutes allotted for dinner. A 6 p.m. prep class held him for four hours until a 10 o'clock evening dismissal, after which he headed to his room for some shut-eye. He would start all over over again within just a few hours. Weekends brought more classes. When do you sleep late? I asked. Sunday. Sunday is my favorite day, my day of rest. But even then, I think about Gaokao. This comes at the expense of everything else. For good measure, his parents had ramped up their scare tactics, deploying the stories they'd used to frighten him into study since he was small. A favorite involved the true tale of an older cousin who'd tested poorly, and of course a litany of misfortunes ensued. No job, no girl to marry, parents living in poverty. The boy finally found work through a family connection, but he's seen as inferior. Darcy once told me he didn't work for it. What I found most interesting about the cousin's story was the language around the boy's failure was never he wasn't smart enough. Instead, his relatives clamored in a legend that would surely echo down the generations. He didn't work hard enough. Darcy promised himself he'd forge a different path. Gaokao is a platform for success, a milestone you must survive so people will recognize your ability to achieve. He told me, you sound so wise, I told him. Study arms you with more opportunities, Darcy responded. When people jump at the same starting speed, the higher you jump and the longer you stay in the air, the farther you get. Studying diligently will provide me with a higher starting point. The Chinese belief system around effort is one of the most important things I've learned from my childhood and from my time in China. From the legendary hardiness of the communists on the Long March, a bitterly difficult year-long series of red army treks covering roughly 6,000 miles, which launched Mao Zedong's ascension to power, to the fortitude of the average Chinese student today. Chinese culture propagates the idea that anything worth accomplishing takes serious, sustained effort. This isn't to say that Chinese don't believe in luck or fates as assigned by folk religion. Proper homage to ancestors can supposedly bring about a string of blessings, and of course another group of beliefs espouses that birth legacy can be determinant of faith. A dragon gives birth to a dragon, a chicken to a chicken, and the son of a mouse can only dig a hole. Yet, overriding this in an intrinsic belief that anything is possible with hard work, with chiku, or eating bitter. If there's a goal worth accomplishing, day-to-day life might be absolutely and miserably unpleasant for a spell. It's a concept that parents tell their children. Teachers ingrain in their students, and China's leaders use to motivate their populace toward a goal of modernizing China. The concept reverberates in the classroom. Studies show that for children who score poorly, Chinese teachers believe a lack of effort, rather than smarts, is to blame. 
There is little difference in the intelligence of my students. Teacher Mao, a Chinese language teacher at a Shanghai high school, told me his voice unwavering in his conviction. Hard work is the most important thing. Conversely, Americans and Europeans are more likely to believe in innate ability. How many times have you heard a parent say, I was never good at math, so how can I expect John to like it? He doesn't have the genes for it. There's a tendency in Western culture to believe when it comes to academics, especially something technical such as math or science, that you either have it or you don't. Asian and Asian American youth are harder workers because of the cultural belief that emphasize the strong connection between effort and achievement. White Americans tend to view cognitive abilities as qualities that are inborn. As a 2014 study, research study put it starkly. Anyone who studies psychology and education will tell you this is a dangerous mindset. It's simply not true that a child's innate abilities explain gaps in achievement. Overemphasizing a belief in talent gives kids a free pass. Why bother trying if I can't help it? I simply don't have what it takes. This mindset profoundly affects the way a person lives a life. Psychologist Carol Dweck has devoted her life's research to the debate between intelligence and effort. And she says, effort wins. The self-esteem movement said that making children feel smart and talented would help them succeed in school, Dweck told me from her office in Stanford University. But too much emphasis on smart and these kids aren't motivated. They don't persevere. The winning approach is clear. Instead of telling a kid, you're so smart, we should say, good job. You worked hard. When I think about the ch how the Chinese emphasize and put emphasis on effort, I realize it derives in part from the modern experience. For decades, the nation has witnessed legions of youth study for the Gaokao. This nationwide Herculean effort in and of itself attests that the Chinese believe a high score is more likely to be the result of sweat and labor rather than any kind of inborn intelligence. This type of mindset has special value when it comes to learning math and science. You have to work hard to achieve, says Xiaodong Li. And the Chinese work hard. Small, wiry, and full of energy, Lin is a Chinese immigre and a professor at Columbia University's Teachers College in New York City. In one of Lynn's most widely cited studies, she divided teenagers trying to learn physics into three groups. One group of students was introduced to some of the greatest scientists of our age, Galileo, Newton, and Einstein, and told of these men's very intense efforts to develop the theories that made them famous. Newton was presented as a man whose hard grinding everyday work ethic led him to develop his gravitational theory. Einstein developed the earth-shattering theory of relativity, but the teenagers were told he also tried, for the last 25 years of his life, to establish what was called a unified field theory of electromagnetic and gravitational phenomena. There, he failed. 
A second group of students was told of the scientists' lifetime achievements and nothing of the process in getting there. The control main group mainly learned about the physics they were studying. The results were clear. For certain, groups of kids hearing about the torturous struggle of the greats increased their confidence and interest in learning physics. It was a maybe I can do science too moment. Those kids who heard about effortless genius were demotivated. Those who believe that intelligence is a fixed entity give up or withdraw quickly when facing challenging tasks, Lynn wrote. People who believe that intelligence is malleable and can be increased incrementally with effort are more likely to hold learning goals in school. Westerners could take a page from this playbook, Lynn emphasized. Americans think that if you have to work hard, you're not a genius. You see it in the headlines all the time. Extreme success without struggle. This attitude creates problems in the classroom, says James Stigler, the UCLA psychology professor. In America, we try to sell this idea that learning is fun and easy. But real learning is actually very difficult, says Stigler. It takes suffering and angst. And if you're not willing to go through that, you're not going to learn deeply. The downside is students often give up when something gets hard and when it's no f longer fun. The Chinese teacher who wants to present a difficult problem has it easy, Stigler says. The Chinese teacher can just say, work on it. And the students will suffer. They'll struggle through it. They'll be uncomfortable. The Chinese have socialized their kids to put up with suffering and discomfort and all the things that are really important parts of learning. During a Minnesota high school visit, I met a Chinese teacher who'd bumped up against a clash of cultures while teaching Mandarin to American students. Short-haired, with an easy smile, Xinjiang was nothing like the image of an authoritarian Chinese teacher she had as growing up in Xi'an, the Chinese, famous, Chinese city famous for terracotta warriors. I told her so, and she laughed. I started out very controlling, but I noticed that if I yelled, my American students rebelled. She said, they talk back. Sheen made other observations. Her students couldn't sit still for an 86-minute class. Parents complained when she assigned too much homework, and she had to make the classroom fun and enjoyable. Ironically, Americans are on the right track when it comes to athletics. It's all about getting better, getting better, working harder, Jim Stigler said. In sports, we're okay with competition and struggle. And the American conscience is okay with rankings in sports. A ninth place finish simply indicates a runner should retool and continue training. A ninth place finish doesn't reflect poorly on a person's self-esteem or worth, Stigler said. But in academics, you don't want to embarrass someone by ranking them number 30 because it's not their fault. In American academics, you either have it or you don't. That's too bad. At this, Stigler, sitting in his UCLA office, wrapped his knuckles on his desk.
A belief in hard work over talent isn't exclusively Chinese, of course, but it seems to be a philosophy more easily embraced by the culture. Another one, and the concept of committing knowledge to memory, especially by methods of rote learning. Memorizing gets a profoundly bad rap in the Western world. It makes robots of children, the belief goes, or androids of students who can only recite upon command, devoid of any creative thought. This follows Western philosophy, which promotes the idea that humans are more developed than animals. The mind is not a vessel that needs filling, but wood that needs igniting, proclaimed a statement attributed to the Greek historian Plutarch. Today's internet-savvy world helps enable this approach, allowing us to go through life committing very little to memory. Why should we bother when knowledge is available at the click of a button? If you want to recall Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, the capital of Ethiopia, or the first ten digits of pi, a search engine will immediately cough up the answer. We have facts at our fingertips, and as a result, school children are less doing less and less and less work committing facts to memory. Here's where I go to the research, which declares that this is a dangerous trend. Real learning doesn't happen unless information is imprinted in the long-term memory, the cognitive scientists say. And that transfer of knowledge into the storehouse of the brain can be accomplished in part through memorization and practice. Here's the key. Once a child locks away key information, he can free up the active memory for thinking deeply, or even being creative. British educator David Didal puts it this way. It's worth memorizing certain things to the point that they're effortless, so then you don't have to think. American psychologist Daniel Willingham wrote that the bigger storehouse of information a brain has, the better the brain will comprehend information coming in, thus allowing more thinking to occur. Expert problem solvers actually derive their skills on a huge amount of information and experience stored in long-term memory, one research team wrote, in education psychology. In other words, you can't just look it up, Google it, or ask your neighbor. In general, the Chinese way of education fully grasps this concept. Children are in a golden period of memory expansion, as editors of a primary school textbook on Chinese classic writing put it. A 1998 Shanghai experiment found that primary school kids who spent 20 minutes a day memorizing classics could read more characters and had increased focus and concentration after a year. Memorization of important facts also teaches students discipline, and this approach goes hand in hand with the Chinese language learning for the younger school children. It's not that memorization in isolation is the key. Even Confucian scholars say that philosopher, the philosopher promoted active inquiry and thinking through inference. And it's important that bits of knowledge are interconnected and accessible. A recent phenomenon in education psychology calls for introducing desirable difficulties 
into the learning process, which helps a person retain knowledge for longer periods of time. The Chinese memorize the basics, cement a strong foundation of knowledge, and use the remaining time to progress to deep conceptual understanding. They don't learn multiplication tables through project-based learning, says the OECD's Andreas Schleicher. <laughs> Chuckling, that's a waste of learning time. The opportunity costs are very high. We do many things in a way that's not very effective. As a child, I spent many an hour memorizing times tables, the periodic table of elements, algebraic formulas, and scripts line where rehearsing for plays. Every theater actor knows that once the line of plays are embedded into the brain, the true emoting can begin. More than a decade after a trip to Slovenia, I still remember how to count to 20 in Slovenian. Ena, dve, tri, tri, pet, sest, sedem. Since Rob and I had spent several hours memorizing and chanting, assisted by beer and chestnut schnapps, chestnut schnapps. In his own journey to memorize Chinese characters, Rainy is up to 300 already. Look, mommy, he said, pointing proudly to his stack of flashcards. We store them in an empty oatmeal container, and every weekend we take them out for drills. We sit there for 10 minutes a day. Okay, well, not every day. And look at them together. I flip a card, he recites. I flip another card, he recites. Big, small, mountain, sweet, teacher, all in Chinese. In later school years, the Chinese commit to memory the first 20 elements of the periodic table, mathematical formulas and theorems, and historical facts, among others. Passages from classical poetry and famous writings are also important. My father can still recount the poems he learned as a primary schooler. I once asked Amanda which ones were her favorite. Jing Yishe, she said without hesitation, or Thought Upon a Quiet Night by the Tang Dynasty poet Li Bai. Can you recite it? I asked her. Amanda immediately looked up, as if inspiration would drop from the sky. Then, very quietly, the words came tumbling out. Amanda spoke of a bright moonbeam shining into a bedroom, while a little boy's head lifts, gazing at the moon, and sinks back down with thoughts of home. When she finished, I sat there for a moment, and the latte-sipping patrons around us dissolved into irrelevance. She paused for a moment, then spoke, her voice as soft as if it were ambling up a fragile beam of moonlight. At first I'd learned the poem when I was very, very young kid, probably primary school, Amanda said. We memorized it in class. It's just beautiful. It has a rhyme at the end, and there's a moon in the sky. When I see myself look at the moon, I think of my hometown. What is the moral? I asked. The poem teaches me how to deal with homesickness. Amanda said, 
When I was in the U.S., I spent a lot of time thinking about this poem. Ten years after first learning the poem, Amanda could still recite it by heart. From there, she could talk about its meaning and conjure up enough emotion that it soothed the pining for home. Any Chinese school child would be able to do the same. On this, I fall short. I could recall only the titles of a few poems I learned in grade school, and I certainly couldn't recite any of them from the first word to the last. What's more, a few lines of verse didn't help resolve emotional struggles in my life. In that instant, sitting across from Amanda as she lost herself in the luminescence moon of Jingyeshi, I thought, what a pity that I can't. That's the end of part one. Feel free to jump over to the next one and uh, we'll continue with chapter 12, Genius Means Struggle. Hey everybody, this is Shannon with VIP Kid World and welcome back. I'm going to jump right into our next part, uh, part two of chapter 12, Genius Means Struggle. Uh, let's get right into it. I decide also to look into the Chinese approach to teaching. For the importance that the entire nation assigns to education, what are its leaders doing to prepare those who deliver it? Plenty, as it turns out. The Chinese believe teaching is an art form that can be studied and improved, like the craft that it is. Educators are steeped in a tradition of videotaping classes, evaluating teaching methods, and asking colleagues to observe their own instruction and offer suggestions. There's a sense you can actually analyze teaching, make it judgments about its quality, and come up with ideas for how you improve it, said James Stigler. In China, teachers' training is built into the daily life of the school, and it is generally rigorous and regimented. The average new teacher in Shanghai might spend about 50 hours a month in professional development, on top of her regular teaching load, for the first three years of her career. From there, requirements gradually ramp down, though even the most senior teachers may still listen in on two classes a month and exchange ideas with peers afterward. Teachers of the same subjects may be grouped to swap information, and those of different subjects may meet regularly to talk about the teaching methods and, as well, each student that they share. There's more. Individual schools and local and district education bureaus each have distinct training requirements and the central ministry also has recommendations. Some include sending teachers overseas for training and cross-cultural exchanges, which keep ideas and curricula moving across borders. At East China Normal University, one of China's top training institutions for teachers, every student is encouraged to spend at least a year in a foreign country. Rainey's teacher Song told me she had visited Australia several times. And while choice is valued in a democracy like America's, China enjoys the efficiency of being able to send teachers 
where they're most needed. The most experienced teachers may be sent to the most challenging classrooms and seasoned principals to schools needing expertise with incentives offered when necessary. Other programs pair higher performing schools with lower performers in mentoring relationships, sort of like giving a big brother or sister to a school in need. Most notably, to the benefit of everyone involved, especially the student. Teachers specialize in subjects from the very first year in primary school. A first grade math teacher teaches only math, while another might be in charge of only science. This means that the kids are exposed from a very early age to instructors schooled at a high level of expertise and content knowledge. Conversely, American public school teachers in the primary years are generalists. A third grade teacher might oversee all subjects, including math, English language, and the arts. Teaching is largely private, with little expectation of collaboration with others or performing research to improve teaching practices. And generally, rigorous teacher training tends to end or continue only outside of school once actual teaching jobs begin. I like the idea that Rainey's first grade math instructor would teach only math, undergo rigorous professional development that is built into her school day, feel adequately supported, and work with her peers to continually improve her practice. All this ties into the idea that teachers are worth respect. China affords teachers more status than any other country. A global education nonprofit found in 2013 survey, though I had proof enough in the jitter that overtakes my hands when I talk to Rainey's teachers. In fact, teachers are equated with doctors in regard and earn similar salaries. Although both professions in China are generally considered poorly paid and rely on red envelope gifts to supplement income. Roughly half of all Chinese would encourage their children to become a teacher, in spite of the poor pay. Less than a third of parents in West, many Western countries, including the United States, France, the UK, Spain, Germany, and the Netherlands, would do the same. Deborah, an American teacher who'd spent two years teaching in rural China, told me that she'd never felt as appreciated or as hopeful about the impact of her work as the first moment she walked into a Chinese classroom. I had the same experience when I taught English at a Shanghai kindergarten two subway stops from home, taking on two classes a week for two years. On my first day, I was terrified, and I eavesdropped outside the classroom door as the head teacher prepped her charges. Eyes up, toward the front, be Renzhen, serious. She'd instructed her children. The kids were packed so tightly into rows that the back of the chairs rammed into the knees of the children behind. They were quiet, faced forward. After class, I will call the names of the children I thought behaved well, the teacher said, surveying the class. Finally satisfied, she beckoned to me, and I stepped inside. Good afternoon, I said in Mandarin. 
and the silence of the room was immediately dashed as twenty-eight children rose from their chairs. Good afternoon, teacher! Twenty-eight voices chimed back, their force seemingly pinning me against the wall. In this environment, my lessons unfolded with perfect rhythm, like the inhale and exhale of an accordion belching scales, and by the end of the first month, my students could count from one to twenty in English, chirp all the days of the week, and sing the letters of the alphabet, and recite the entire text of the very hungry caterpillar. Polar bear, polar bear, what do you hear? I'd asked the class, just before twenty-eight voices came screeching back at me. I hear a lion roaring in my ear. I'm not saying children need to be packed tightly in rows, facing front and reciting while the teacher lectures, but it's certainly helpful when children are expected to listen to the teacher and pay her respect, with consequences for failing to do so. When educators don't abuse this respect, this setup can be very effective in making progress in the early classroom. I'm also appreciating the habits that Rainey is developing. A year and a half down the road, and he started primary school. I would find that he prepares his own backpack for school. He sharpens six pencils himself, checks for an eraser and black marker, zips up his pencil case, and slots his English, Chinese, math, and reading comprehension books into his bag. When the teacher sends him home with a notice, he brings it directly to us for discussion. On those days, I appreciated that his Chinese teachers began instilling these habits and behaviors when he was in kindergarten. One is simply showing up on time. <laughs> I finally understand the purpose of the blaring bullhorn at the entrance gates. Authoritarian, yes, but effective. Once a child misses the gate and experiences being shut out of school, he rarely is late again. Punctuality is an incredibly important quality for a school child. A 2012 OECD study found that truancy or tardiness accounts for the equivalent of losing almost one full year of formal schooling in mathematics scores. During elementary school, before our morning walk, Rainey would wait at the front door, urging along his laggard parents. Let's go! Let's go! He'd tell us. Attendance is also critical. American students have nearly double the hooky rate of the average OECD country, which is directly correlated to lower scores. An emphasis on discipline in school is also carried home. Where's my desk, Mom? Rainey asked me one day. I stared at my then six-year-old, dumbfounded. What do you mean? You and Daddy have a desk, but I don't, he said, spouting an observation he'd learned from speaking with Chinese classmates. Most Chinese homes contain an area specifically designated for their children's study, and that holds true across Asia. More than 95% of fifth graders in Taipei and Sendai, Japan, had desks in their home, compared with 60% for kids in Minnesota, which happened to be the state chosen by the authors of the study. Chinese children aren't simply using a cleared-off dinner table or corner-of-the-table coffee table. 
If there is a desk in an American home, the authors wrote, it is more likely to belong to a parent than a child. Chinese parents are also formally roped into their child's education, whether they like it or not. Generally, they must review a school child's homework each day and every day. And the same goes for tests. It's not enough to go through the motions, as they must prove their parental diligence. Uh, Primary school teachers ask mom and dad to sign graded exam papers, as well as booklets listing the day's homework, which the child then returns to school the next morning. It's a signed traveling messenger of communication between teacher and parent. Yet parental assistance has a time limit. Parents should be very focused on the primary school years, Rainey's teachers clarified for me, with the expectation that children can manage their own workload by middle school. Habits are very important, teacher Song told me in an end-of-the-year school meeting. You start the children out right with parental guidance, and then their own guanli, management, takes over. In this arena, at least, we'd succeeded. Rainey was on his way to developing habits of disciplined study that would last a lifetime. Of course, any uh, one of these upsides of Chinese education can be taken too far. It's only common sense that teenagers shouldn't spend hours a week committing facts to memory without a larger context. Teacher respect and authority are helpful, but when that power is used to break children's spirit, not when that power is used to break children's spirit. A cultural emphasis on effort shouldn't mean that the work is more important than life. On this last one, in truth, I've always needed a little therapy. My own parents were workaholics. In the face of achievement, my sister and I rarely heard good work. Instead, we were taught to look toward the next milestone. What's next? I remember this most distinctly from the day I got my acceptance into Stanford University. Toward this milestone, I toiled my entire 17-year lifespan. And one day, our black iron mailbox spit out a plump white envelope with a return address printed in cardinal red. It was my ticket out of high school, away from Texas, and straight out of my teenage years. Only my father was grappling with the one-way fare and the freedom it would bring his firstborn. What makes you think you deserve to go to California? My father screamed. Do you think you're worth it? We'd been arguing about my future for nearly an hour. My father had envisioned an East Coast Ivy League, and a notch down on his list was Rice University, which had offered me a full merit scholarship. I'd placed myself under the epicenter of my parents' red oak dining table, and I felt a strange comfort with the grain of the wood running overhead. I could see my father's bare feet pacing back and forth, the head of the table. I'm going! I'm going! I screamed to the underside of the table. Stanford is expensive, my father muttered almost to himself. Faced with the thought of his daughter's sudden departure, He was swimming in an ocean of fear and uncertainty, as well as the prospect of a tuition bill arriving in the mailbox every quarter for a school that wasn't his top choice. Chinese parents typically pay, 
but this also buys them a voice in the decision. In the last few years of high school, our fights would build until they erupted, extended volcanic blasts of anger and stream. Anger, steam, followed by long periods of silence and avoidance. We battled over nearly every aspect of a teenager's life, from whether I could go on dates, only for prom, spend spring, ba- spring break at the beach, not during high school, dry out for captain of the drill team, if grades stay perfect, or buy a new Dooney and Burke purse every year like the rest of the girls in my circle. Waste of money. I secretly dodged the rules I found most egregious, but our arguments about the rest grew so fierce that before long, we both began making small adjustments and concessions, lest our household erupt into outright warfare. I'd learned to sense where to press and when to retreat, but on the topic of where I'd spend the next four years, I wouldn't give up. I'm going, I'm going. I repeated. There was something about Stanford. Volleyball in the front of the quad, palm trees lining, the morning commute to class, a fierce community intellect that seemed to belie the California sunshine that grabbed my imagination. Can you decide just like that? My father challenged me, his voice softening a bit. Yes, I can, and I'm going to Stanford. I yelled from underneath the table. And there's nothing you can do about it. We exchanged words for another heated 20 minutes, until finally both volcanoes quieted. As always, my father managed to get off the last word. Tossed over his shoulder as he stormed out of the room. You better be worth it. If I'm going to pay for Stanford, you better do something with it. It's fair to say I didn't get a single pat on the back for all the late study nights, SAT prep, or hours labored over college admissions essays. My father was already focused on what I'd do with the degree I hadn't even earned yet, a full six months before I would even step foot on campus as a freshman. In retrospect, a little praise heaped on my childhood shoulders might have helped quiet some demons the ones with sharp, haunting voices that many of my Chinese and Chinese-American friends speak of. These little guys cling to your collarbone and whisper, as Amanda put it, you're not good enough. You're not doing enough. Someone's always doing more and doing better. With the benefit of age and hindsight, I know that not every moment of the day should be spent in pursuit of accomplishment although I'm sure I could find at least a quarter billion Chinese who might disagree. On the flip side, I know that I generally outwork most people, especially in the face of a task that seems impossible. Perhaps here, I've benefited because I never had a self-esteem angel assigned to my shoulder, whispering sweet words of encouragement. Success boiled down to a simple equation, and I could always submit summit the mountain with enough well-directed effort. Most days, I'm thrilled we've given Rainey an opportunity to learn this lesson. We didn't intend his teachers to force eggs upon him, isolate him, issue threats, or bestow upon him any of the other dubitable methods the Chinese themselves are taking a hard look at. 
Yet, our son survived. He's a gritty, resilient kid, and he's thriving in the face of challenge, including the dental variety. Rainey has four cavities, said Dr. Nina, a woman of few words, except for a handful I didn't care to hear. Two are so big, he might need a root canal. But he's only five years old, I stuttered in a dental office that towered high above the streets of Shanghai. Those are just baby teeth. They'll fall out anyway. But they must be saved, Dr. Nina insisted, as spacers for permanent buds underneath. Ayi was immediately mistrustful. Are you sure it's not just the dentist wanting to make money? She hollered when I announced the news at home. A few months earlier, she had explained the countryside abortions. In China, if you don't want the baby, you go out and ride bikes, run and swim, she'd said, pumping her arms and legs vigorously. Uh, I think the dentist is trustworthy, I said, hesitant to ask after countryside dental practices, especially after hearing about the rural prescription for unwanted pregnancies. Back home, we don't get baby teeth treated, Ayi told me. They just rot away. It hurts and hurts until it falls out, and then a new one grows in. I told her that seemed like a cost-effective option. Sedation and laughing gas aren't common in pediatric dentistry in China, and Rob and I were anxious about our son's first visit. So on the day of Rainey's next appointment, we both begged off of work for a couple of hours. I love Zhaoji, our little boy whispered as he met his parents at the classroom door, using a term from school that meant early pickup. I wish you could Zhaoji more. I noticed a lump bobbing up and down inside his cheek. What's that? Teacher Lu put an egg in my mouth, he said. I peeked inside. It was a quail egg the size of a large marble. Does she do that a lot? I asked. Sometimes. Is it always an egg? No, sometimes it's a dumpling. Teacher Lou, a stout woman in her mid-fifties who always wore a white apron, was the classroom IE who oversaw the kids eating and sleeping. Last year, I might have found it odd that a teacher would line up a child, up children's single file and insert foodstuffs into their cheeks. Rainey had a countermeasure. I'm going to spit it out, he said when we moved out of Teacher Lou's earshot. Lump moving under his cheek, I noticed my son is highly skilled at talking with an egg in his mouth. Do they let you spit it out at school? No, but I'm with you now. Good point. We crossed Big Green toward the school's front gates, and Rainy ran ahead to a cheery trash can, painted to look like a smiling mushroom. He carefully slotted his head into the mouth, looked down into the basin, and spat. The egg shot out and landed on some discarded tissue. He studied, studied this pale orb, pulled his head back out, and smiled as Rob and I caught up with him. Ready, let's go! The dental procedure was quick, and it was an immense display of resolve from a five-year-old. 
If the nerve is exposed, then we'll need to go in and clean out the nerve cavity, said Dr. Nina, dressed in a gown covered with scampering zoo animals. Rainy lay underneath a massive neck-to-ankle apron, lighted Star Wars sneakers peeking out of the end of the sheet. The tray next to his chair held a variety of metal instruments that were small and child-sized, as if the usual array of dental objects had been subjected to an incredible shrinking machine. Dr. Nina moved quickly and efficiently. This will take taste like little strawberry, so you're going to be very still, right, Rainy? The dentist smeared numbing paste on Rainy's little gums, line and inserted a needle right into his soft pink gums. She pressed firmly down with the syringe. In all, Rainy would need three shots of Novocaine. If you feel uncomfortable, raise your, right, your left hand, Dr. Nina said. Rainy raised his right hand, feet twitching. That's your right, raise your left, Dr. Nina said. Rainy switched hands, all fingers wiggling maniacally in the air. His fingers were frantic, but his body was still as the second and third shots were delivered. Is that the needle? Rainy said, speaking past the instruments. It delivers medicine, Dr. Nina said. I hate it, Rainy said, cotton moving in his mouth. I know you hate it, but we kind of need it, said the dentist. It struck me that she'd just uttered a parable for the Chinese education system. Hence began the parade of shiny, pointy things. Dr. Nina inserted all sorts of instruments into my little boy's mouth. A butterfly prop to keep his mouth open. Long, tiny metal sticks used to clean out roots. A silver hook to maneuver chunks of cotton. One instrument was long and needle-thin, as if it could poke out the eyes of a bumblebee from a distance. Rainy's little hands were clenching, unclenching, but he didn't move. His little feet twitched and trembled, but he didn't move. Forty-five minutes later, Dr. Nina removed a bloody cotton, and it was over. See you next time, Rainy chirped, jumping down from the chair. On the way home, Rob and I brimmed with hypotheses. Slightly stunned. Is this because of Chinese school? Rob wondered out loud. He listened well to an authority figure and he can handle pain, I offered. He knows he can't always expect everything to be easy. Let's go back there again, Rainy chimed in. <laughs> Novocaine clearly still in effect. The next day, I pulled aside Teacher Lou at pickup, firm in my resolve. Please don't put any more food in his mouth at snack time. I said, Rainy should only eat at lunchtime. Eating frequently is bad for his teeth. All right, she said, blinking at my direction. What about cookies? No cookies in the morning? Especially no cookies in the morning. I said, the Chinese had figured out how to make their children expend mountain-moving amounts of effort, obey authority, 
Memorize multiplication tables and practice for weeks at bouncing a ball in competition with classmates. But for oral health and the dangers of refined sugar, I liked it my way. And that is the end of chapter 12. Uh, in our next set of podcasts, we're going to take a look at our final and 13th chapter of this book titled The Middle Ground. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you have so far enjoyed this book, almost 300 pages into the book. Um, I have definitely enjoyed it myself, and we are almost coming to its conclusion. Please look forward to the end of the podcast reading coming up here soon. And once again, thank you for your support. Feel free to share the podcast. Feel free to reach out for any ideas you have for other podcasts. Otherwise, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.